Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm a professor at the University of Florida. And today we're talking to you from the Growing SA Conference in uh, Australia. <laughs> I blanked on where we are. What's the name of this place? Hor- not, um, I almost said Horsham, but this is... Hondorf. Hondorf. It's the one that sounds like it's a Harry Potter place. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm here, and it's near Adelaide, outside of Adelaide, and I'm here with Adrian McCabe, who is a local grower, and then also um, Wade Dabinet, from, uh, but who is also a, a farmer, but it's, um, but also a uh, the, the chairman of Grain Producers uh, SA. SA, and uh, they always abbreviate SA. Yeah, South Australia makes us. South Africa, bigger than we are. Yeah. <laughs> so we're, the big uh, news in town this week is really uh, the lifting of a moratorium. And the moratorium is was really state-specific. So if you look across the continent of Australia, they've done a nice job with um, adoption of genetically engineered crops and just a couple of them. We'll talk about that in a minute. But we're at a kind of historical precipice because of the lifting of a moratorium that was really state-specific. So we'll talk about all of this in just a minute. And maybe I should start out, you know, Adrian, maybe you could start telling me about, you know, about this. First of all, what really grows here in South Australia? What are the critical crops that people are farming? So probably the difference with the South Australian is we've got uh, very neutral soils. So we're able to grow low-grain legumes for, um, for the Indian and Pakistan type markets. So things like lentils, chickpeas, faba beans, and then into a wheat canola rotation off the back of that. So we're a very winter dominant rainfall uh, with a hot summer. So we produce high protein wheat and we're also able to grow legumes fairly successfully. And with that profile of crops, none of those are genetically engineered anyway, except for canola. And so um, is it something that you would potentially choose to grow here if there was not a moratorium? So we would. So we've taken, we've been able to exist a long time without GM canola. We've pushed probably triazines, atrazines, um, group Bs as far as they can go. Um, with the, with grain legumes, however, we, we've really developed those markets for need. It's a great nitrogen producer, but it also allows us to use crop topping for resistant ryegrass and things with um, with Nuquat, Paraquat, whatever the brand may be. So we've nearly taken that to as far as it can go. Uh, group A resistance, group B resistance is, is very prevalent here. So now we're really looking forward to moving into GM for another tool to eliminate resistant ryegrass. And just for this audience, which maybe is a little more techie than, than farming sometimes, uh, can you talk a little bit about Group A and Group B, what those are? So clethenum um, takes out grasses within grain legumes. So ryegrass is our biggest resistance here, although wild oats, uh, black oats, is growing, uh, resistance is growing within Australia and certainly South Australia. Um, also along with uh, barley grass, those sort of issues. So they're becoming more and more prevalent as 
the Group A's finish up um, and have done. Group B then gave us an extra couple of years to, um, to control them. They're now also gone as far as resistant goes. So that's um, things like Intervix, um, or Intervix mainly in, over at Canola. That worked for a little while, added with Group A. So they gave us a double, double action, but now that's, that's pretty much failed. Okay, so it's just a, just a different types of herbicides and the weeds they control. So selective herbicides, essentially, yeah. able to use on these different crops. And uh, the, the trizines are always very interesting. So this is uh, the Clearfield technology. So could you tell us a little bit about that? So the trizines, we're using uh, simazine and atrazine, um, but in, in canolas um, and faba beans. Um, so historically, we've always used them in faba beans. Now we've pushed them across into canolas. Um, so we probably use up to two kilos here is, is about the maximum we can use in our pH soils. But once you put triazines into canolas, there's about a 10% yield reduction just by that just by that gene that, that enables the triazine tolerance. So yeah. So again, now we've got now we're able to go into the Roundup Ready. We don't need to have that. 10% yield penalty for that chemical action. Yeah, it's actually kind of interesting that there's a moratorium on GE crops, so you can't have something that's genetically engineered, yet there's an herbicide, a selective herbicide-dependent mutation. Yes. So a DNA change, which, well, you know, and everybody laughs, right? Because it really is the same thing, only a little different. You know, here's a here's a herbicide ins um, insensitivity that is naturally occurring versus one that is installed. And one is installed, but it's installed by making a mistake in DNA, right? So, and who knows what other mistakes are? Any so anyway, we, this audience understands this whole thing. But um, so, what would it be like to? Uh, you mentioned you know you would lose, get around the yield penalty, but are there other advantages to having the ability to use a GE canola? Well, it's much broader than just Roundup Ready for um, for the state. Um, being out being out of the GM game, um, our, our scientists have left the state. I mean, they, they can't operate. Our, our Wake University, which people might not, might know, it, it's it's been our Centre for Genomics has been the year we started it up. The following year, we put on the moratorium and gutted the place. I mean, it's just an absolute tragedy what's happened to science in South Australia as well. So, it's a broader thing than just we're looking forward beyond Roundup Ready. I mean, we want all the products. We want it for pastures. We'd love to see it in grain legumes um, to get those yields up. You know, water use efficiencies up over 30, 40 percent. Get them up to 110 where wheat now is. So. It's a much broader thing that we're looking forward to. Um, safflowers, uh, omega-3 canola, you know, some really cool stuff about. I think our farmers now have seen Roundup Ready over the border, but we're looking beyond Roundup Ready. Yeah, it really, it really is the, the case. It's nice to have another another tool in, in the rotation even, you know, with trizines and, and, and glyphosate. But, um, but yeah, this is opening up at a time that it's really relevant to open up. And maybe I should come over to Wade for a minute. Yeah. You know, um, what can you tell us about the moratorium and really what it means that it's now likely a thing of the past? Yeah, so uh, the moratorium on GM crops or the cultivating of GM crops in South Australia has been in place for 15 years. Um, up until last year, we actually had the same government for 16 years. So they pretty much carried a policy through of, um, of being largely anti-GM. Um, and that was really with a handful of um, of people within that party that were just ideologically opposed to genetically modified crops. And unfortunately over the last 15 years, 
Um, you know, we have had people that aren't subject matter experts ignoring the science and the economics um, of GM crops and, uh, and held us back. So South Australia decided not to be a first mover with GM crops. We've seen huge adoption through the East Coast with GM cotton, BT cotton, um, and GM Roundup Ready Canola through New South Wales, Victoria and WA, who are our neighbours. Uh, so finally, we've had a change of government leading into the election. They took uh, in uh, the policy that they would commission an independent review. So that was the first time that we had commissioned by the government some independent analysis, a subject matter expert, looking at the pros and cons of the moratorium. And that found that over the course of that moratorium that it had cost uh, the state $33 million. Now that didn't look at um, you know, weed control benefits on farm and really on farm productivity. So that was just purely looking at um, the cost of, uh, of the canola industry within South Australia. And what that also really showed, while that number might not look that large, it showed that all the other um, cropping and food industries within South Australia wouldn't have a detrimental impact if we lifted the moratorium. So finally, uh, you know, we're at a position now where we've got uh, some economic analysis that shows this moratorium has been a huge handbrake and the government have now moved to act and adopted those recommendations of that review to lift the moratorium. Now that was an announcement last week, so after you know, a lot of uh, lobbying and advocacy on behalf of the grains industry that's really wanted to have access to this technology. Um, we're finally there with a government that agrees with us. We've just got a process to go through. Um, now, the moratorium can be changed within the regulations of the Act, and uh, so there's a period of six weeks consultation, and then it's up to the Parliament to decide on whether they'll pass those regulations or not. So we've got a little way to go. Our uh, winter crop planting starts uh, in April, May next year. Um, hopefully um, things move swiftly over the next few months that could mean we could start cultivating GM crops uh, for next season. So that's very exciting. So there is a consultation period. So this is a period where people, where the public may weigh in on this. Mm. And as I've seen, you know, for years, is that the people who weigh in are typically not the farmers and scientists, right? They're the, uh, you know, tinfoil hat wearing. Uh, yeah. And so is there something that you might recommend for any listeners in SA or maybe anywhere else who can uh, help maybe leadership understand what this is. Yeah. I mean, good example, at, uh, at our annual conference today, Growing SA, uh, we had um, the opposition spokesman for um, primary industries, and he and all of the opposition um, members of parliament have received an e emails um, standardised from an activist group. You know, so they are already getting hounded you know, by, activism, uh, by activists. And at the same time, farmers probably aren't that coordinated down to that granular level, putting that pressure up. So that's our job as the state advocacy group to try and make sure that we've got as many voices over the next six weeks pushing the positive information on why we need to act. Um, so look, it's, it's, it's a challenge, but if we look at the media over the last week, it, there has been resounding sort of positivity towards lifting the moratorium by all the agricultural industries. So hopefully we can block the tinfoil um, hat wearing activists out um, and just focus on what the farmers of South Australia need. It's funny, I obviously spent a lot of time on radio last week as a spokesperson for the industry and the only real opposition person that was coming up against me was a professional activist that doesn't even live in this state and he, he, his whole uh, business structure is around raising funds to be anti-GM. Yeah. So that's, you know, we're not getting pushback from farmers in this state. 
we're not getting pushback from uh, from really the community. Um, so I think that's the real positive in this that we need to put that message out there that you know we can listen to the noise and the activists, but let's let's listen to the people that are that are operating this state and trying to you know take things forward. So it's it's a ban on growing the crops, but are the products in the stores? Could I go buy canola oil right now that yeah. is maybe from uh, GE canola? made in uh, Victoria. Well this is the lunacy of the last 15 years is that the um, the consumer has had all the choice in the world. They can walk into our supermarket today and buy biodynamic, organic, GM, conventional um, and have all the choices and yet us as farmers haven't had that same freedom and the right to choose the best crops that we want to grow on our farm. The other crazy thing is I've um, um, on the Victorian border, which is another the, a neighbouring state, um, I'm 20 kilometres away. Adrian Farms just north of um, of Adelaide, the capital city. But where I am, um, you know, the border isn't a biosecurity zone. You know, you don't have to get patted down at the border um, to check if you've got canola seeds. In fact, our neighbours and my friends that farm in Victoria grow canola alongside GM canola. Their non-GM canola they deliver into South Australia. So we've already shown that. Um, crops can coexist um, right up and down the uh, right up and down the border. Um, so it, it is a bit crazy that uh, consumers have all the choices, and at farm level we haven't had it. Well, maybe I could throw this back to Adrian because you know if you listen to the activists, they say that this is all about taking away choice from farmers. That this is a big ag and putting in their heavy hand to make sure they're telling farmers what they can and can't grow. And so, um, are you ready for? Uh, um, you know, the big ag companies to tell you what you're allowed to grow in your space? It's disappointing it's called big ag, isn't it? I mean, the whole moratorium was set up initially to protect the wine industry and the cheese industry. I mean, South Australia is famous for wine and cheese and some cottage industries. So we've had, since 2008, a good chance to give those industries fair air to find, to find their way. And those industries have come out fairly some of them in support, some of them agnostic towards, you know, it doesn't affect them one way or the other. And, and that's what the Anderson report has shown. And, you know, initially when we started, you know, fair play, let's have a look, let's see if we need to protect those industries when, when it first started. Since then though, it, it's been ridiculous. And um, so we've now, a long way down the track, we're now looking going, yeah, big ag. Uh, it's not just big ag. I mean, that's that's the silly part about it. There's small ag involved. Everyone wants to get involved. We need we need science at the state level. We need we need students. We want our most talented and brightest students availing the latest technologies to boost South Australian agriculture. Agriculture is our main industry, and we need to be backing that. Oh, very good. I, I guess the other the other question. Maybe you know this. Maybe you don't. But you, know, you said it's a huge cheese industry. Are they allowed to use genetically engineered rennet? <laughs> no, no. All right, so uh, you know this is the major cheese enzyme, yeah. and ninety-five percent of it comes from a microbial source that's yeah, been genetically yeah. engineered. I'd love to know. Yeah. <laughs> that would be a fun fact-finding. Yeah. Issue. Well, fifteen years later, it's probably a good thing to point out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny um, you talk about are we ready for the big big ag tech companies? Um, you know, after the announcement last week, um, GPSA and our members and directors naturally were out on social media and, and the trolling that happens uh, and the accusation that we're all just paid up mouthpieces of uh, Monsanto and Bayer. What's funny, um, 
I think yesterday was the first conversation I've ever had with an employee of Bayer about uh, GM, and I've been the chairman of Grain Producers SA for three years, so I'd love to know where these rivers of gold that I'm meant to be swimming in are, because they'd be quite helpful in years of drought. Well, apparently I know. <laughs> um, you know, but uh, I understand the same thing. It's such a throwaway comment that here we are trying to make meaningful change. Yeah. In your case, make real progress for farmer choice. Yeah. And, uh, and we're still dealing with the same kind of rhetoric that was floating around back when the moratorium was imposed. Yeah. Um, I guess the other, you know, real important, and anyone can speak to this one, is, you know, the new, we're at the cusp of new technology and looking at gene editing and all of the interesting facets of new things that may be coming faster. And how do you feel about the lifting of the moratorium at the same time as what might be a greater democratization of technology, that it's not going to be just, you know, three big companies anymore. It may be, you know, the, um, you know, the, the, the local universities or... Yeah, I think it's, it's a really exciting time in South Australia. So at the moment, um, the current government has, has got a real focus on ag tech and building um, up our tech, uh, technology industries um, that support agriculture in the state. And also at the same time, having a look at our research institute or precinct here that we call the Weight Institute, in which over the last 15 years under the moratorium, it's probably been in a steady decline with capacity. So the lifting of the moratorium is putting a hand up and saying, hey, we're open for business here. And they are the exact people that we want to be listening to what we're saying and saying, well, I think we can go and invest in South Australia. The second tier seed companies, you know, the smaller, the smaller startups uh, that are looking at gene editing and solutions that they can, um, you know, or, or issues that we face here in South Australia and come up with local solutions. Um, and I think we've got a government that's ready to support companies that are, want to come in and have a look at that um, and house them here in our, in our research facilities. So I think it's a really exciting time if we do see the democratisation of, of the seed industry at the same time. Yeah, I think one of the big things that I see is um, smaller companies being able to be more agile and direct relationship to um, immediate need or local need that maybe large companies would ignore or universities being able to contribute in a more direct way as they should um, as being taxpayer funded bodies and it, you know if you had a wish list maybe you know do you have uh, you know Adrian any anything that you think would be a real uh, benefit in terms of what you do or maybe something different for the region that maybe someone you're aware of would find helpful I think the grain legumes are the big one that's miles behind um, technology. It's been purely driven through uh, a feed grain going into the human consumption market. So white, disease-free, uh, it's this thing that we still fungicide a lot um, and the production's not where it should be. And I think everyone recognises that. It was recognised today at the conference. Um, I think that's, that's the big one we'd love to see. The Omega-3 is a really interesting one too for a state that fish farms. Yeah. So. You know, we've, we've got, a, we've got a, a snapper ban at the moment in, in South Australia. It, it, um, so the fish stocks, that, that sort of stuff would be amazing if we can, you know, support all of industry, not just grain, not just, you know, it's the whole state that we need to be expanding. Yeah, it's really an interesting time because whereas other states may not have had the opportunity to really think about ways that they could take full advantage of these kinds of uh, changes. You know, this is a conversation that's happening here and it's, it's been pretty exciting. So if we look across all of the industries here, 
yeah. in South Australia. What are some other industries that may find great benefit from the lifting of moratorium? Yeah, so I'm a uh, potato producer as well as a, a grain grower. Um, South Australia is the biggest potato growing state in, in the country. So um, we know that there's uh, significant benefits that could flow. Um, there's been some great developments with genetic engineering and potato crops in the US. So that's really exciting. Uh, we've also got uh, an apple orchard industry. Um, there are irrigated crops within uh, South Australia as well. Um, so there's certainly going to be some solutions that will come their way. And, and a, a really large significant livestock industry that is looking for uh, new pastures. And I know, um, you know, uh, Lucent or our alfalfa seed industry down in the southeast of the state um, that, you know, really needs to probably de-risk um, from that Saudi market and look at other GM type seeds that they can export to other consumers around the world. So it's really pivotal for the future viability of, of that industry. So it's really exciting right across agriculture in South Australia, not just grains. Well, what are your traits in potato? Is it late blight or is it... What, what, what would be exciting for potato? Um, well, I, I know the one, the one, I think it was the innate potato that is going to reduce acrylamide when it's fried for the processing industry. So not necessarily agronomic, but we've got a, a growing processing industry here in Australia, which we really need um, because domestic consumption of fresh potatoes is declining. Um, and we know that we can export process. Um, you know, there's an insatiable demand for processed potatoes um, globally, so, but if that um, global demand moves um, to wanting, you know, acrylamide-free potatoes, we're not going to be able to service it if we don't bring that here. So we're also joined by Tanya Morgan. She's also a farmer here in the area, and well, not in this immediate area. You're actually a little bit in, out of town in the state, right here. I am a couple of hours out of Adelaide. Um, I live in the South Australian Mallee, so that's a low rainfall region. And I also work with um, a large farmer R&D organisation. So we do a lot of research trials and extension with farmers. Okay, very good. So, are, um, and so what would you see as potential benefits from a place that's relatively dry? Are there environmental opportunities with uh, genetic engineering? Yeah, I, I see that one of our biggest risks to production is climate variability. So we're seeing a lot more dry seasons. Um, yeah, farmers having to work with all sorts of different conditions and if we can get some genetic material, some good GE crops that, that can deal with that sort of situation, frost is a big one for us. Um, we also have, um, so low rainfall, farmers have to dry seed very like, often, so weeds become a really big issue and you know just having that capacity to deal with weeds um, after the crops emerged is, is like Adrian said just another tool in the toolbox. Yeah so, so more um, abiotic stress resistance would be would be preferred because of climate variability. Is it getting worse? Uh, I, I think our farming systems um, that are becoming better and better are selecting for more frost damage. We're seeing more frost damage and I think the climate is changing for us to see more frost damage. I think for a long time um, farmers have been wanting to see some sort of massive genetic gain in frost tolerance, um, which the research development corporations that we have here say is really difficult to find. So we need to um, look at a, a more than two degree um, frost um, tolerance, which we're not seeing at the moment. So. Um, genetic engineering might be the only way we can get around that. Yeah, that's a, that's a really tall order. Even with genetic engineering, it, it's difficult. difficult. So um, we're also here with Dion Wolford, who also is a, is a producer out in SA. Where are you located in the state? 
Uh, so we're at Kimber, we're five hours north of here, and our, our northern boundary of our farm is literally on the edge of the outback. So we get um, 300 mils of rainfall and it's predominantly through winter. So if I can quickly explain our farming system, it's based around a rotation so you can get the crop in early so it can get up and establish, but also to flower in our ideal window. So the ideal window is so it's flowering with a minimal frost risk um, but also a minimal heat risk because it goes from cold to hot, the season changes really, really quickly. So um, our rotation involves a pasture for our sheep and then it might be uh, a wheat. Wheat, is, wheat underpins our, our rotation and so the whole thing works around that. But if we can get the crops up and growing, flowering that optimal time, um, you know, we've got the best chance of yield. Now, if you, if you could ask me, um, if I could have a wish list of, of um, you know, uh, my ideal crop, it would be something that's uh, frost resilient and heat resilient because that would open our flowering window right up and we could start planting, you know, whenever the optimum yield might be. Okay, so I could ask you, if you had a wish list, <laughs> you know, we can always, we can always go backwards, right? No, but, that, that, but right, so I get an idea. You're really looking at a very narrow window that probably is more variable from year to year, both on the front and back side. Absolutely. So trying to hit the target is really uh, difficult. And so even having something that um, – I always had kind of a, a weird concept that if we could control flowering, like go outside and spray something or yep. push a button, Perfect. you know, I mean, but, but really that's where we're going and that would be the next level of maybe synthetic biology that's coming. Um, that would also be um, something restricted under the moratorium. But you're also a cattle producer, right? Or a livestock producer. Yeah, sheep. Sheep, that's right. Yeah. So if you're doing sheep, um, you're, you're also growing crops that are being, are it like uh, legumes or vetch or something that is being used for sheep or what? Yeah. So we grow, we do grow vetch and that's to, um, to, to build um, natural nitrogen in the soil to, to, for the wheat crop or the um, oat crop that follows that. But we also grow dryland lucerne. And I know there's a genetically engineered loosen available, and that would be just dynamite in our system. And it would take, you know, it would take uh, herbicide pressure, uh, the, the the groups that we're currently using, straight off of that. So it would really open up um, us for clean paddocks, and we could perhaps expand that area into our into our better soil types, and then and then increase production there as well. I don't even know what loosen is. Loosen. Alfalfa. So that oh, alfalfa. alfalfa. <laughs> What is this unusual stuff here? <laughs> yeah, it's illegal, I'm assuring you. Well, that's why you know you learn something new every day, right? Well, across the board, you know, we're sitting here with, with four farmers from the state, and we probably are at an average age of what 35 years old or so. And and uh, but but the but this is really important because um, you know it's it's not the same kind of farming that maybe your fathers and grandfathers did. And, uh, but is there, across the uh, age range, do you think, I'll maybe start with Tanya, is there more acceptance among farmers right now in, in younger generations than there is maybe in people who were here before? Or did everybody think this was great? Um, I, I, I might be a bit skewed where I come from because I come from a very frost-prone area and the farmers that I deal with, even the older ones, have been dealing with frost for such a long time that... I think they're almost sold on it more than what maybe some of the younger generation are that are 
might be getting some of this fear-mongering that, that exists at the moment. So I'm not seeing a lot of that with the farmers that I work with. Um, they're all excited about the technology. They can't wait to get their hands on it and just have more access to it and are excited about the potential that might come out in the future. Yeah, you know, and Dion, maybe same kind of question. You know, what I've noticed here at this particular meeting is that the that younger folks are super enthusiastic about this. And uh, last week being out at Marcus Oldham and working with, uh, in the business school with um, growers from all over the state, I should say producers, because they're um, farmers and ranchers. Um, really, it's a very optimistic group. And, and is that something that you find in general for, um, for not just the state, but maybe the continent? Yeah, so um, we learned today in the conference that we've got the second highest rate in the world of farmers that are under 35. So that's an amazing statistic in a, in a group where the average age is something around the 50 mark. Um, on, I, I agree with Tanya's um, sentiments about the, like they are just sick of getting cooked with frost and heat and they're just ready, you know, for a solution. But uh, the younger demographic, we're at the very tip of our career in agriculture. Like we've got a, a whole career in front of us and we really need to be making the gains, and I think uh, our age group needs to be heard. Okay, that's a great way to end it. So, you know, Dion Wolford, um, Tanya Morgan, uh, Wade Debonet, and, and Adrian McCabe, thank you very much for joining me today on the Talking Biotech Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, we'll be back next week on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We'll leave a review on iTunes or wherever you consume social media. Uh, share it with a friend. It's uh, a message about food, farming, technology, and medicine that is only gaining more attraction and attention as we go forward because of the uh, optimistic future that's happening in agriculture. And it's really being led by leaders like we have here today. So thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.